In our last session, we were introduced to the two witnesses, two mysterious men, prophets of doom, evangelists with extraordinary supernatural powers. They may just be the most obscure characters in this eschatological drama. My guess is that many, even in the church, have never heard of them. Yet in them, we see echoes of John the Baptist, fiery speech, prophet of doom, abnormal attire, and even Christ Jesus, death, resurrection, and ascension. These two men, whoever they are, play an important role in the progress of the tribulation and the eschaton as a whole. They foretell the approaching holocaust of the third woe, the seventh trumpet with its seven bowls of wrath. That is the third woe. Now let's read the first portion of our passage, Revelation 11, verses 5 to 6. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Can we have number two, please, Zeb? These are powerful prophets and evangelists. And it's clear from what we know of them that they are not from the turn-the-other-cheek school of evangelism. Remember, as I discussed last week, this is a different time from ours, specifically a different dispensation from the church age, or dispensation of grace. It's where we're at now. The period of the tribulation is not generally demarcated as a specific dispensation. In my own chart, the grace dispensation moves right into the kingdom, the millennium. Now, there's, there's no one right way to chart the dispensations, as I pointed out long ago. Uh, there's all kinds of lists. There's a generally around seven or eight. Uh, but usually they don't even include the tribulation. It just does what I did. But whether or not one includes the tribulation as its own dispensation, clearly once the tribulation is inaugurated after the rapture, the dispensation of the church age is closed. The church is gone. For a moment at least, Every Christian on planet Earth has been removed. That's something to lean back and think about once in a while, what that'll be like. No Christian on the Earth. No Holy Spirit for the moment, for the time being. 
which means the rules will have changed. Yes, some can and do acknowledge Jesus as the true Messiah during the seven years, and many of them will be killed as a result. But it's painfully obvious to anyone left behind that God is dealing with mankind in a different manner than he did before, and especially different from that of the church age. Now, if we could go back to 14, Zeb, then, then you're done. Go take a break. Verse 6, these, that is the two witnesses, have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. <laughs> this is no longer the age of grace. A three-and-one-half-year drought is not new in God's Word. James gives us the Reader's Digest version of it according, occurring when Elijah was prophesying. Here's what James write, writes in chapter 5, 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Sidebar, between that similarity and the same Elijah calling down fire on his enemies, which is what a lot of commentators refer to, some have surmised that the prophet Elijah is one of the two witnesses in Revelation. And some surmise that the other witness may be Enoch, based on their other powers listed in verse 6, and that they were taken up without dying. That's what they base it on. That here's two guys that were, were taken up without dying. Because in the New Testament it says, well, it was given to man to die once. Well, if they died before, then they can't be killed to come and die again. See how you get twisted up trying to figure out who these guys are. Does it matter? No, I contend. I will leave that conclusion to whomever may wish to entertain it. Now let's back up a minute before we proceed. I'm usually reluctant to dig too deeply into punctuation, since most people these days don't even use it well. Uh, but here perhaps it's worth a moment of our time. All of our common versions except the King James Version, the original King James, which does not insert quotation marks at all, uh, place quotation marks in the text beginning in the middle of verse 1 with get up and measure, with the closing quotation marks at the end of verse 3. Yet, the text that follows, verses 4 to 10, does indeed sound as if the narration by God or Christ Jesus is continuing. It sounds like someone telling a story, telling something. This may be why it feels different to us. This is not a vision being played out before John. That's how this has been happening up till now. Some 
strange supernatural thing happens in front of John and he writes it down so that we can know what happened. That isn't what's happening here. It's like it's as if history is being told. It's something being told to John. Only the Young's literal translation, which I doubt anyone carries with them to church services, plays the closing, places the closing quotation marks at the end of verse 10. Whether we call it the gospel or not, these two men are witnessing, telling of. That's what the word means. They're just telling, speaking forth. Christ to a world that has become a swamp of evil and depravity. Because this is no longer a period of God's forbearance of sin, the tools with which these witnesses deliver their message are instruments of wrath. That is the period we're living in in the tribulation. If we are living in the church age, the age of grace, the people on earth in the seven years of the tribulation are living in the time of God's wrath. If they stand before someone who even wishes to harm them, someone who even thinks they might want to harm them, they're roasted. Fire comes out of their mouth and they're killed. Apparently not in reaction to attack, but just because they command that it will not rain during their time of ministry. We're not told why. They just don't want it to rain, so they turn it off. Like Moses, they can turn flowing water to blood and call down plagues of any and all sorts at will, and as often as they like. It's in their hands. Not surprisingly, these two men are hated with a passion. Go figure. For three and one half years, they can say what they like, and no one is able to get rid of them. No one is able to shut them up. They can't be canceled. Their social media accounts cannot be censored or shut down. No one can shut them up, even though every word from their mouths is as abrasive as sandpaper to everyone in this depraved society. There's nothing they can do about it for three and a half years. They will be hated with a passion so that when they are finally killed, and this is where it really gets bizarre, the world will celebrate as the Democrats would with dancing in the streets if Donald Trump were assassinated. And believe me, they would. But how will they be killed? Let's read our next two verses, verses 7 to 8. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their, where their Lord was crucified. I thought just for the fun of it, we'd let the guy who has the mic in his hand do, do one of the verses. That makes sense, doesn't it? Verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. 
We had better pause for a moment and get our bearings. Just who is this beast that comes up out of the abyss? Who kills the witnesses? You are not alone if you're a little confused. As always, commentators do not agree. I'm just going to have that stenciled on my forehead. Walvard says this is Satan. MacArthur says this is Antichrist. Guzik says most likely Satan. Robertson says Antichrist. Seiss doesn't say the big chicken. Let me show you why I say it is Antichrist. We'll see if I can prove my point. Even though later, 13.1, chapter 13, verse 1, he's described as a beast coming out of the sea. First, don't confuse this with the reference from 9.11, where the king of the locusts is described as the angel of the abyss. There it's not beast from the abyss, it's the angel of the abyss. That angel, we concluded, was one of Satan's archons or lieutenant angels. He, Satan was the fallen star of 9-1, and the angel of the abyss is one of his angels. Here in our passage, the potential confusion arises because the individual is referred to as a beast. And there is more than one beast in the eschaton. The question we need to answer is, is the beast here, who is out of the abyss, different from or the same as the beast out of the sea in 13.1? Well, let's first look at chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. See what it says. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Now, if you're in your version, that verse is at the end of the previous chapter. Don't worry about that. We'll deal with that later. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now in the Revelation, the dragon is clearly identified with Satan. Then John sees a beast coming up out of the sea. He describes him as having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. It should not be surprising to us that the beast's description matches that of the dragon in chapter 12, verse 3. They're virtually identical. So you might say, well, then it must be the dragon. No, no not necessarily. Since Antichrist is the son of Satan, just as Jesus is the son of God. And what we learn from the New Testament, the, the way son is used in the New Testament, son does, doesn't mean from your father's loins. It means you are like him. You behave like him. And Jesus told his disciples, 
Why do you worry about this? Why do you keep asking to see God the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm enough. So, of course, they would have the same description, the same appearance. Like father, like son. Even though the physical, albeit fantastical description, is the same, we know that they are not the same individual, because here it says that the dragon, Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And we know that somewhere around the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist will take his throne in the temple in Jerusalem. Thus, the beast out of the sea is not the dragon, but receives his power from the dragon. Now turn to chapter 17, please. Chapter 17. Here we have a different woman, not Israel, but Babylon, sitting on, quote, a scarlet beast, end quote. We'll not take the time now to dissect this prophecy. We're only concerned for the time being with the identification of the beast. That's why we're here. Look at verse 7. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So at this point we know the beast in that passage is either Satan or the beast out of the sea. But as we read on, it becomes clear that it's Antichrist who will rule over ten kingdoms. But note the next verse. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is and will come, is not and will come. Here, Antichrist is referred to as the beast about to come out of the abyss. Finally, in the Old Testament, a correlation is expressed. We've looked at beast coming out of the sea, a beast coming out of the abyss. Okay, which is it? In the Old Testament, a correlation is expressed and metaphorically between the sea and the realm of satanic activity. Listen to Isaiah 27.1. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. So the two, sea is often associated with the place of demonic activity in the Old Testament. Thus, we conclude that the beast that comes up out of the abyss in 11.7 is Antichrist. MacArthur writes, the abyss is the prison for certain demons. Though, he's, though he is a man, the beast is energized by the demonic presence and power coming from the abyss. 
The purpose of this verse, however, back to chapter 11, is to state that when they have finished their testimony, the beast will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Just how Antichrist kills them is not stated, but we know from 20, chapter 20, verse 4, that he likes to behead his enemies. Here's a picture of God's sovereignty. And I love what David Guzik has to say about this verse. So, three and a half years, they're killed. Guzik writes, their ministry is not cut short. They fully accomplish their task when they finish their testimony. Praise God. We cannot be taken off this earth until we finish our testimony. The devil does not have power over our lives. We are witnesses of the Lord, and he will protect us until our testimony is finished. I like that. Guzik continues, this passage illustrates the difference between being a witness and giving testimony. Witness is not something we do, it is something we are. Giving testimony is what a witness does. As to the time frame for this verse 7 episode, even I can do the math. Verse 3 says that two witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days, that is, Three and one-half years. If, as verse 7 states, they have now been killed, then in the narrative timeline, the curtain is coming down on the tribulation. Right? Now, admittedly, there are some who say, well, we think they're witnesses during the first half of the tribulation. But that just doesn't track very well at all. It's surely the second half. If, as verse 7 states, they have now been killed, then in the narrative timeline, the curtain is coming down on the tribulation and the return of the Lord is imminent. But some of you may be saying, but now wait a minute, we've still got seven bowls left. How can Christ be coming when we've got all this to look at? J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings was a saga masterfully told. But the author had a rather odd way of organizing and writing some parts of the story. In some portions of his trilogy, especially in the middle third, he could follow the trek of a couple or few characters for a hundred pages or more. Chapters. Just those guys. And then he'd bring them to a certain point. Then he'd back up in time, pick up two or three different characters, and move them forward, just them, through that same period of time. So for several chapters, as if nothing else exists, just these guys. Then he'd go back to the beginning, pick up a couple more, and take them through that time. That's what's going on here. I suggest. From Revelation 11, 3 to 12, the last half of the tribulation, from the perspective of the two witnesses, 
is told to John. Then the seventh trumpet sounds in verse 15. And a series of visions are given to the apostle, followed by the outpourings of the seven bowls of wrath. So when the seventh trumpet blows, we don't even go right to the seven bowls of wrath. We've got several chapters of parenthetical visions. And all of that, after the bowls of wrath, then, finally, the return of Christ. So obviously the text folds back upon itself, covering the same period of time more than once from multiple perspectives. And we've already seen various parenthetical prophecies that point this direction, some that point that direction. The book of Revelation is not a steady beginning to end linear historical track. It is, was not written that way. And if you try to force it to be, you'll be very confused. It's confusing enough as it is. Verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. They would not even bury the men. J.A. Seiss helps us grasp the immensity of this outrage. Here's what he writes. This is so intense an outrage upon common decency and humanity that it is full of significance here. Even to the worst of criminals, the law awarded burial on the same day of their execution. Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. But all law and right feeling is set at defiance with regard to these prophets of God. The exposure of their dead bodies tells of a most extraordinary malignity and spite and attests the extraordinary potency and effectiveness of the objects of it. They were effective witnesses. It shows at once a devilishness of unwanted intensity in the people and a terribleness of efficiency in the witnesses in provoking a fiendishness and resentment so monstrous and unrelenting that it could not be placated by their death. To die was not enough, but continued to reek and vent itself upon their lifeless remains after they were dead. We don't talk like this anymore. It's too bad. The principal territory for the, that's J.A. Sice. The principal territory for the testimony of these two witnesses was in and around Jerusalem. Not insignificantly, not insignificantly, at the same time, the center of Antichrist power. If we're correct that this is in the, during the last half of the tribulation, Antichrist is on his throne in the temple, the Jerusalem temple, all this time, which makes sense. That's where they would prophesy. Yet commentators have done their best to mishandle this verse, saying, well, it could be Rome or the papacy or Egypt or whatever that's 
it could be any one of these cities around the world. The term translated mystically in the NASB is better rendered as in the King James versions spiritually. The word is pneumatikos, pneuma, wind, spirit. In other words, this great city, Jerusalem, has sunk so low in its wickedness. If you can imagine when you read the time of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those prophets, how bad, how sinful Jerusalem was, this will be a time far worse than that. It sunk so low in its wickedness that it could be mistaken for Sodom or the land of Egypt. The capper, of course, is that this city is identified as one where also their Lord was crucified. End of discussion. It has to be Jerusalem. Now, let's read verses 9 to 10, please. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations <clears throat> will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Verse 9. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. Someone from the first century, or even as recent as the first half of the 20th century, might read this and wonder how the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations could possibly in just three and one half days attend this gruesome visitation. Two dead bodies lying on the street in Jerusalem. But then this is prophecy, isn't it? And it hasn't happened yet. And those of us today, a time when people from all over the world can watch a nest full of bald eagle fledglings grow up in Decorah, Iowa in real time, one can well imagine how the entire world could be watching two corpses lying on a street in Jerusalem. No big deal. No problem. As long as there's satellites up there, we've got it covered. And verse 10 explains why this perversity of leaving exposed the two corpses was so important. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate they will send gifts to one another for crying out loud because these two peoples, these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They were effective. Thus hated. John Walvoord brings out an interesting aspect to the first phrase of this verse. Those who dwell on the earth. Now, we read that and we think, oh, he means people on this planet. But yeah, that's us. Which is repeatedly used in the Revelation. But in the Revelation, it means something more. 
And all we need to do is revisit a verse we just looked at to see what Walvert is referring to. Look again at chapter 17, verse 8. Same verse, but we're going to highlight the middle of it. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Now, here it is. And those who dwell on the earth, comma, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, comma. In other words, the second phrase defines, it illuminates the first. We'll wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Repeatedly, this phrase is used in the Revelation, twice in this verse alone, to refer to those who are not only dwelling on the earth in their physical bodies, but whose hope is limited to this present life. They do not just live on this earth. They worship this earth. This is their hope. Either they see nothing beyond this time on earth, or they believe something else will take care of them. But their hope is in the here and now. That is the persistently unregenerate, the lost, those who worship something other than the God of heaven and his son. And Walvert isn't just making an assumption. If you do a search on this phrase, as I did, you'll see that I, mean, I can't swear to every 100%, but this long list, every time, in every setting, it referred to that. It, was, it referred to the lost, those who place their hope in this time and place. Those rejecting Christ, those clinging to this present age rather than the age to come, those who worship something other than the God of heaven. And it's not hard at all for us to understand this, for we're surrounded by just such a culture. Those who place all their trust and hope in this present world rather than the next, ruled by Christ Jesus. This world is on its way out. Revelation makes it very clear, as well as other passages in the New Testament. It will be at least renewed, depending on how we interpret the end of the story. At least renewed, but probably replaced wholesale. Burned up and replaced. And here in this prophecy, we see such people turning the death of these two witnesses into a perverse second Christmas, with dancing in the streets and even celebrating by the exchanging of gifts. Whoa. As they look upon the rotting corpses. Just as today, it would seem that what comes along with such a worldview is a healthy dollop of stupidity. 
People without the Spirit of God think that killing the messenger will also destroy the truth of the message itself. If we can just kill those spouting this gloom and doom, then the gloom and doom will not occur. So let's kill them. But no, killing the messengers does not kill the message. In this instance, however, it backfires on these depraved simpletons even more than that. Yes, the wrath of God will proceed. The judgment to come will occur. Those whose names have not been recorded in the book of life will indeed spend an eternity in the lake of fire. But God has not forgotten his faithful witness, his witnesses. Their testimony is not yet over. Let's read 11 to 14. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is to come. Oh, he's using that strange ESV. That's, that's the... Uh, but I will point out down here at the bottom of the page that he correctly read what the voice from heaven says because the ESV puts an exclamation mark after it, and that's a good translation. That's what it is. It's a command. Come up here now. Do it. But I digress. Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet. <laughs> oh, hello. Are you still here? Can you imagine that? Yeah. The whole world is watching. Their testimony is not over. The whole world is watching. And they just, I, I, take, I have a, take another instance with the ESV. If you read it correctly, A spirit, A spirit. No. Breath of life is it. The, no, the word before it. Is it the or a? Ah. Yeah, I, 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 I think it's his, his breath. It, it isn't a random one. Okay. Yep. <clears throat> All right, I'll let you off the hook there. Where was I? Okay. They stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Well, I guess. Father God knows how to do this. After roughly the same amount of time, he had done it for his own son. And now he raises back to life those who have carried and delivered his word during these final days before a worldwide audience. And this time, not in the dead of a night, dead of the night, outside around a tomb. But here it's in broad daylight, we assume. If not, there'll be lights on them. 
And everyone will see it. Everyone will witness it. They'll be seeing it happen in real time. These two who had been slaughtered and left to rot in the streets for three and a half days will take to their feet. And if they were killed in the manner in which he kills others by beheading, we can add that to it. No wonder they were afraid. Boop. They will stand up and let everyone get a good look at what the sovereign God can do for those he loves and who love him. And the hearts of all the viewers around the world will be filled with fear. Verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. In a scene that reminds us of both the baptism and ascension of Jesus, the Lord God speaks audibly so that everyone in the world can hear his affirming invitation. And as I've said, in point of fact, it's not an invitation. It's an imperative command. Exclamation mark. Do this now. As the ESV has it, this moment and the father's sentiment is not that Different from what the voice said at Christ's baptism. Both express approval. Both are in public so that others will see and hear. The difference between the two, and I'm sure Greg would call me on this if I didn't bring it up, is that with Jesus it was an affirmation to send him off on the beginning of his ministry. While in this scene it is the Lord declaring Well done, good and faithful slaves. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 25, 21. Verse 13. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Whenever I read this verse, I wonder if it reflects the warfare that overwhelms Jerusalem just before Christ's return. Time frame is kind of in the ballpark. And the geographic turmoil that occurs when he stands atop the Mount of Olives. That is, does this verse represent a condensed version of the events of Zechariah 14? Since I can find no one else who even considers that point, I am apparently a solitary voice. Not the first nor the last that that will occur. And almost certainly this is not describing that same event. So Father God lifts out his faithful witnesses and punctuates the moment with a powerful earthquake that levels a tenth of Jerusalem with 7,000 fatalities. It's hard not to see retribution in this. Different time. It's not the time of grace. As before, witness the godly behavior of a different dispensation. This is God doing it. Same God but he's treating people differently now. This is not a period of grace and forbearance. God retrieves his servants, then punishes the city that would so hate and abuse them, even after their death. 
This is a God of wrath. Same God, but now he's displaying his wrath rather than grace. Time's up. He promised. He said it would happen. The verse ends with, And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The typical scholarly response to this, most in most commentators, is voiced by M.R. Vincent. Quote, The phrase signifies this, gave glory to the God of heaven. Vincent writes, The phrase signifies not conversion, not repentance, nor thanksgiving, but recognition. But Alan F. Johnson offers a fairly convincing argument for this describing true repentance and conversion. The earthquake is God's further sign of the vindication of his servants, but unlike the earthquake under the sixth seal, this one produces what appears to be repentance. The survivors gave glory to the God of heaven. The opposite response is in 16.9. They refused to repent and glorify him. Seems to confirm that... This verse speaks of genuine repentance. Well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. So once again, we can only conclude that we don't know whether the resurrection and ascension of the witnesses, followed by God's retribution, spark true faith, or just an acknowledgement that, by golly, there must be a real God up there somewhere. That isn't conversion. That isn't repentance. Now, if this were our only narrative thread, in our next session we would be celebrating the return of Christ. But it's not. As it says in verse 14, we have recounted the first two woes, trumpets five and six, and the third is coming quickly, that is, soon. Some Interpret that to mean it's going to happen fast. No, it means it's, going to, it's coming up on us real, real soon here. And sure enough, in the next verse, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. But then before the events of the bowls of wrath, which are the third woe, we have a long list of parenthetical visions which we will begin to investigate in our next session. Yes, Greg. Yeah. What? Oh, oh, yes. I keep forgetting you need a mic. I stand with you in your solitude on, or I, I think I stand with you with you <laughs> in your solitude on thinking that this might be, you know, the battle that's, that's coming together, partly because it explains why they can all see it. If they're all gathered in one area ah, and it happens. The camera might pan up to Christ on the <laughs> Mount of Olives. Huh. But... Can you explain further why? Because you, you, it seemed you seem to say that you stand alone in thinking this. However, it couldn't be, you know, Zechariah fourteen or what happens later in, in I Revelation. I don't think I said the word couldn't. I don't think, but then we know my memory is faulty. Almost certainly, this is not describing the same event. Well, if you can't find anyone, anyone, who even raises the point, you're probably out on a very thin branch. And, and it's, it's probably not. 
I think that position of that it probably is not will be strengthened when we get there and we really examine because there's a lot going on there. I mean, that's a very busy time with all kinds of things. Do they overlap? Do, are they on top of each other? And there's a lot going on. So hold that thought till then. We're past time. Father God, we, we stand in awe of this story, this nonfiction story that has not yet occurred. We are in awe of your power and strength. We acknowledge that this is a time when you will not suffer fools at all. And we rejoice in that, for you are God. You promised you would do this, and you will do it. You're a God of your word. You can be trusted. And we place our hope in you, that very same God. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.